Thank you, Jacob. So that was Jonah, starting the last verse of chapter 1 through the first two and a half of chapter 3. I think it's okay that we segment sometimes where, where I think we need to understand the scripture wasn't originally numbered with verses. I really think that's where the thoughts go together well. So though we went over from 1 to 3, 2 is where we are. Let me turn my mic on because this guy over here is complaining. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, there it is. Originally, I thought I'm going to go up there, drink some water, then turn my mic on. <coughs> but I didn't drink the water, so it never happened. All right, anyway, um, we're in Jonah chapter 2. That's where the, the bulk of everything's going to be this morning. But like I said, I want these caps to be on either end of it so we really get a good idea of what's going on here. Uh, if you were with us last week, Jared taught on the first chapter. And so I think it's a good idea. He said it, but I think it's a good idea when we have stories like Jonah that are very familiar, it, not just within the church, but outside the church. People know the story of Jonah when they're very familiar. It's good for us to approach it fresh. Like this is the first time I've heard this story so that we can really see what's going on here without without reading into it what we previously thought about it. And so we, so far, all that's happened is God chose his prophet Jonah to go to the Ninevites, this Assyrian people, enemies of Israel. He told Jonah to go to them and tell them to repent because they're evil. And instead, Jonah ran away. Now, we don't know the reason right now. We learned later, and Jared mentioned last week what it is. But if you just read that first chapter, you don't know why he ran away. You just know he ran away. And he got on a boat and he went the opposite direction across the Mediterranean Sea. And God sent a storm. And the storm was raging. And it was scary for everyone on the boat. They're crying out to false gods, trying to get it to stop. Jonah's like, look, it's me. It's my fault. I'm running from God. So Jonah has this in his mind. God's punishing me. And in order to save yourselves, throw me overboard. And so they do that. And the calm and the seas calm. And Jonah begins to sink. And chapter 1 ends with that, with Jonah 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then, and then chapter 2 verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, so there's not much else about this fish. But for some reason we've made the story about the fish. Jonah and the big fish or Jonah and the whale or however you say it. For some reason we've tied everything to the fish. Because it's impressive. That's amazing. <laughs> A giant fish ate a man and vomited onto dry land. So before we even get into what matters most here, let's just stop for a moment and look at the craziness of this. The dude was swallowed by a fish and vomited out onto land. Let's step back from just forcing ourselves to believe crazy things and consider how weird that is. It's very strange. And because it's so strange, many people have decided that that didn't really happen. It's not literally history, but instead it's a parable or an allegory. And so there's illustrations we have to search for. And, and these people are, are believers that are trying to reconcile. For some reason, they think Scripture needs to be reconciled with our logic and our understanding. And so they seek out explanations for this. And so some would say there's like two sides to this. Some would say it's totally a parable. And, and we would say, I don't think it is because of the explicit evidence in the text. Jonah's a real person, first of all. 
He has a father. It says that in chapter 1. He has a dad. And, and he's referenced elsewhere in Scripture. We know he's a real person. We know the Ninevites are real people. So when we think of parables, we know that God or Jesus didn't use real people in parables. It's an illustration. So he talked about a Samaritan or a father. And so he made connections. But it wasn't like Jonah, a guy who really exists. So we, we set aside that. But even beyond that, the genre of Allegory doesn't fit the story of Jonah. It fits most clearly a, a historical prophetic narrative, just like the stories of uh, Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings. I mean, it fits those because he's a prophet like they were. And so in genre and in, in literary form, it is clearly historical and most likely and enough for me to say it actually happened. It's, it's a literal history. So this really happened. So that's one side trying to say it's a parable. Then there's this other group that would say, we've got to justify it. We've got to figure out how it can happen. Scientifically, we have to prove this can happen. That way, people don't say the Bible's not true. And so they fight, and they usually focus on the fish. Okay, so what kind of fish could eat a man and he'd survive three days? And, they would, and so we have pe- people who say it's a whale instead of a fish. And, and so that's okay. If you want to believe it's a whale, that's fine. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses a word that really just means large sea creature. Okay, It could be a whale. And it, it could be a fish. So if it's a fish in, in the Mediterranean, then it's a great white shark because nothing else could do it. So, or it's a prehistoric fish. It's a dinosaur fish. There's the explanation. There's an air pocket in the dinosaur fish. But somehow We haven't found the skeleton yet, but it exists. So... They scientifically try to prove it happened. It could even be the Leviathan from Job. So if you want to read Job 41 later, if you're a nerd like me and you're interested in the Leviathan, check it out. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, Leviathan is this creature that God created to swim the seas and torment ships and stuff. It's all right. It's completely to the side. So let's leave it alone. Anyway, it could be tons of things. But what's most important is it's not about the fish. The, the story is about God. He's the main character. We know it's about God. And so we don't have to wrestle with, is this real? Did it actually happen? And if it did happen, how do we prove it happened? Because the point is it's a miracle. It, it, it's impossible. You can't prove it's possible because it is impossible. God sent a fish to eat this man and sustained him, kept him alive and had the fish vomit him onto dry land. But let's not miss the big God in the story by focusing on the big fish. So that's why we're calling the series Jonah and the Big God because we want you to see the story is about God. And and the, the most clear evidence that this is an actual story is found in Matthew chapter 12. It's Jesus talking to the Pharisees. They come to him in verse 38. And and some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered him. Jesus answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
This has gospel implications. Jonah must be real. Jonah had to have literally been in the belly of a fish for what Jesus is saying to to have the gospel implication that it has. He's not referring to a parable to describe something actual. He's referring to something that actually happened. He's describing these people as if they actually existed because they did. If Jonah wasn't in the fish, Jesus wasn't in the grave, and then we have a huge problem. So it actually happened. Let's accept that it's true, and let's see how this big God makes something so crazy happen. And then we can move on and see how it speaks truth to us, because the only way we can see who we are is is if we see who, who God is in this story. God is the main character in every story of the Old Testament. Every time we read the Scripture, we think, who is it showing us God is? And when we see who God is, we can see who we are. And it's so important that we read it that way because otherwise we'll start applying it to our lives in ways that that's aren't, they aren't biblical, in ways that would make us feel comfortable or better and, and we'll miss the big picture. And so let's see that God is incredibly gracious and merciful to want the Ninevites and evil people to know him. He's incredibly merciful to, to bring Jonah back to land to preach to the Ninevites. And let's understand that that same big, great, merciful God is big and great and merciful to us. And he wants Jonah to be saved. And he wants the Ninevites to be saved. And he wants us to be saved. And that's the point of the story. That God is great and merciful. And it's a call to believe the gospel. And so we're going to walk through what Joseph read for us. And this passage today is the short-lived moment when Jonah sees who God is and he believes it. So he knows God. He's a prophet of God. But if he really believed God is who he says he is, he wouldn't be running. So he sees who God is and he believes it. And there's a reason he believes it. We need to look at it. And we know he believes it because of his obedience. And he obeys uh, by going to Nineveh. He answers this call and he's obedient. And the obedience flows from what he believes. So we're going to start. If if you want to open up, it'll be on the screen. But if you want to open up to Jonah chapter 2, we're going to read through And as we read through, the reason I had Joseph read before is because I'm going to take a lot of breaks and make some explanations. And, and for me, that's distracting when preachers do that. So I want you to see it as a whole, and then let's break it up. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Okay, fish, whale, sea monster, whatever. Prayed from the belly of the fish. So don't miss here, he's about to go into past tense. So the reason he's going into past tense is because he's reflecting on what just was going on. All right, He was in the middle of the sea, in distress, believing he was dead. He'd sink into the bottom, thinking he's dying, and then a fish eats him. And he starts to pray this prayer, thinking back on what was going on. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is not the name of the fish. Sheol is a Hebrew word that's the grave, the underworld. It's the land of the dead. Okay, so he thinks he's dying here. He he cries out out of distress from the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's noting here, you cast me into the sea. Who threw him into the the water? The sailors did. But he sees God threw him into this ocean. God has sent him to his death is what he's saying. 
Your waves are crashing over me. Your billows are are passing over me. He realizes his death is being received because he deserves it. And he sees that God's in complete control of it. That's important that we see that because it it throws me off a little bit. And and hopefully we can come to an understanding together. He goes on in verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. These bars are the gates of, of death, these gates of Sheol. Hopelessly, he's sinking to the bottom of the sea. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, oh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So notice here, Jonah is in the belly of a fish. And he's not asking to be saved from the belly of the fish. Instead, he's thankful to God for having saved him by the fish. So this man somehow miraculously living inside of the belly of a sea creature is crying out to God, thankful that he's no longer sinking to the bottom of the sea. And, and then in this moment, from verse 7 to verse 8, something in him clicks. Something, something comes on. Something drops down from just thinking to believing. And he says to God something he's realizing, switching from past tense to present tense. In verse 8 he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So something happens in these two verses that brings verse 10 about. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All this reflecting is going on. He's thinking back to having been in the water, sinking to the bottom, desperate to be saved, remembering who God is, seeing that God has saved him from death in the belly of this fish. And something clicks in him. He realizes the mercy of God. He realizes the mercy of God that has called him to go to the Ninevites. He realizes the mercy of God that has saved him from his death. And he says, everyone that worships idols, everyone that would turn to idols, is mi- they're missing the steadfast love. The New American Standard says they're missing the faithfulness. They forsake their hope in faithfulness. They're no longer believing what is true? This, the word faith in the New Testament, in the Greek, is the same as the word belief. They're no longer believing. They don't have faith because they're worshiping their idols. He's realizing that's what went on. And God hears him say that. And he hears him commit. And he not only goes to present tense, but then he goes to future in verse 9. He hears him commit that I will sacrifice to you. I will do what I vow, what I vow to do. Because salvation doesn't belong to me. I don't get to decide who God saves and who he doesn't. It belongs to the Lord. And and then he's vomited onto the land. Vomit is still a harsh word here. They could have chose other words. He spit him out. He he opened his mouth and Jonah walked out. I mean, could have used different words. So there's something still going on here in the heart of Jonah. We find out later on. But God has the fish vomit him, vomit him out on to the land. 
which is disgusting. So it's like Jonah knew the truth, but the truth had to go from knowledge to belief for there to be salvation. And I think that's the same for us. And I've heard Timothy Keller, a pastor that I really respect and listen to a lot, um, he had told the story of his wife describing to him what he believe, what she believes salvation is. All right? So they used to live in an apartment when they got married, and there was a Coke machine in the apartment complex, and she would say that the coin going into the Coke machine is a lot like the friends I have who know the gospel. The coin's in there, but it is yet to drop down in there. And so she, you can't get the Coke out until the coin drops down in the machine. And so I, I was thinking about that when I was thinking through Jonah going from knowledge to belief and thinking about me and this coin that needs to drop down into the machine to get the Coke. And I thought about long ago when I used Coke machines. I don't even know the last time I got a Coke out of a Coke machine. But you put, say it's $1.25. You put the four quarters in. For me, this may not be you. That fifth quarter doesn't go in. It just seems like every time the Coke machine knows, I want to frustrate this guy. I'm not going to take this coin. And, and so what do you do? You shove the little button to return the coins just to start over again. And they don't come out. And so you bang on the machine and you shake the machine. I'm joking about this, but you know, a lot of people die from vending machine accidents. More people die from vending machine accidents than shark attacks. That's a statistic that I may have made up, but it's compelling for this point. You get mad at the machine, you beat the machine, and eventually, hopefully, the coin drops in. And you get your Coke. So maybe you're not making the connection, but I think that the majority of believers are that in-between time when the coin hasn't dropped in. And so they know the gospel. They've heard it. They think it's true. And they'll even tell people it's true. But they don't really believe. And and that belief isn't going to happen until this knowledge drops down into who we are. It changes who we are. Because belief comes from God. Knowledge can come from man. I can teach you things right now and you would learn things like that statistic about shark attacks. And, and that's all good and fine. But if there's no belief, there's no hope. There's death without belief. So how do we get the, the coin to drop? How do we go from just knowing to believing? Because everything we think, everything we say, everything we do flows from what we believe. And so if you want to think, say, and do what is right, you have to believe what is right. Otherwise, you're going to function out of your selfishness and you're going to worship idols. And hopefully, like it was for Jonah, we can see those idols and we can see that God's clearly better. But, but a lot of the time we can't. And so it takes what it took for Jonah facing death to believe. For sure, he was dying. All right, he knew death was upon him, and then he believed. It took for him a storm, being tossed into the sea, being eaten by a fish, for him to know, and it turned into belief. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't know about you, but I want to avoid the belly of a fish for most of my life at least. But something has to change, and we know it's not specific to Jonah because we see it elsewhere um, but, but he believes and then he obeys in, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He believed. What changed? Well, he'd been humbled. He'd been humbled to the point of belief. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Philippians 3.10 says, this is Paul after saying all that he had accomplished, realizing it was garbage, it was dung compared to knowing Christ. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering and become like him in his death. Why did I read those verses? Because we need to see this belief is going to require us seeing nothing else matters. It's going to require us seeing that we pick up our cross and we lay down our life for this. We examine what's in our life. And that that Luke passage, that's just the thesis of that. Jesus says much more severe things. Hate your family. He says, turn against those who you love the most in a way that you would love me the most. He's not saying abandon your family, but he's saying you need to see the love you have for me, realizing who I am, will be so great that in comparison, all else is hatred. That's a big difference. We need to see we love our we love our family by loving God. more. We need to see we love people by loving God. more. Otherwise, it's going to take some discipline. It's going to take some hard times. It's going to take some experiences that would humble us as we see Jonah had to experience. There's a Scottish theologian, his name's Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote a book on Jonah called Man Overboard. And in this book, he describes this Jonah that had a second try and then responded with obedience. And he, he says, this is why it happened the way it did. God intends to bring life out of death. We may well think that this is a principle behind all evangelism. Indeed, We may even call it the Jonah principle, as Jesus seems to have done. It is out of Christ's weakness that the sufficiency of his saving power will be born. You see, Christ isn't weak. He's all powerful, yet he humbled himself to the point of death so that salvation would be born. So fruitful evangelism is a result of this death producing principle. It is when we come to share spiritually and on occasion physically in Christ's death. That's what we see in Philippians 3.10. That his power is demonstrated in our weakness. And others are drawn to him. This is exactly what Jonah experienced. That it had to take death, experiencing, sharing in the death of Christ. For him to see there's so much more. But not just Jonah. This is true about us. So what am I saying? I'm saying it's biblical. It's a biblical principle that sometimes not only does God allow difficult things, but he will actively send difficult things and do whatever is necessary to break us of our self-centered living. This is a difficult biblical truth. This should weigh heavy. It should cause you to say, wait, that can't be right. It's a check in me. Is that true? That not only does God allow bad things, bad things definitely happen. So we have to at least accept God allows them. But not only does he allow him, but he would actively send a storm to cause the sailors to throw Jonah out of the boat. 
It says that's what he did. Jonah's prayer is saying, God, this is what you've done. So why would he do it? He would do it because he loves Jonah. It certainly doesn't seem like pleasant times. It certainly doesn't feel like a good thing, right? If you've experienced hard times, you know it's not pleasant. But God in his sovereignty and his knowledge beyond what we can imagine knows what's best for us. He's always for our good. So when things are bad and they don't seem like they're for our good, we have to believe God is in this. He's for our good. And Jonah didn't realize it at the time. He's crying out in distress, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, desperate for salvation, thinking he's dead. He thinks God sent this storm to kill me, to punish me. But God in his mercy has sent the storm. God, because he loves Jonah, is disciplining him for his disobedience. There's a distinct difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment's wrath because God is just. Discipline is love because God is merciful. And he loves Jonah. And he loves us. And so we know it to be true that not only does God allow hard times, but he would actively bring about them for our good and for his glory. Timothy Keller says it like this. Unless something comes into your life that breaks you of your self-righteousness and pride, you may, you may say you believe the gospel of grace, but you aren't a sign of the gospel yourself. You don't have the Jonah principle working in you. You aren't a strength out of weakness person. God will have to bring you low if he's going to use you for evangelism. That's harsh. That's hard. Nobody wants that. In fact, it's terrifying if you've forsaken the faithfulness and instead worship idols. It's terrifying. It should scare you if you spend your life worshiping idols and don't see the bigness and the mercy of God. It should be terrifying if you don't believe God is who he says he is and he's going to do everything necessary for your good and his glory. If you don't believe that, The fact that God would discipline you to the point of throwing you into the sea should be scary. But if you believe God is who he says he is, you can have peace in knowing God will do whatever it takes to save you. There's no guarantee in scripture anywhere you search, no matter how hard you search, that God's going to keep you safe. He never promises to keep you safe. In fact, often he mentions the opposite. There will be tribulation. There will be hard time. But he has overcome the world. Christ has laid down his life so that we could experience salvation, not safety. So that we could know him forever, not live a comfortable life here and now. And so there will certainly be hard times. Let's bring this closer to home and think about Katrina. It's been about a decade since Katrina, but it's still very much a real and raw thing for the people in our state. And, and there's, there's reasons beyond just that it was a bad hurricane, but the government failed to do what the government needs to do, and the levees broke, and people died. Many people died. And so the harsh reality is that many of those people who died in Katrina went to hell. It's hard, but it's true. And some of those people went to heaven to be with Jesus forever. That's good. Some people survived Katrina, and because of it, they're bitter and angry. They're angry at God, they're angry at the government, they're angry at anyone that would want to bring it up in conversation, even to this day. And some people have experienced Katrina, survived, and been made better. 
And they're stronger and better for having made it through. And not only that, but they're humbled to see how little they are and how little control they have over their life. So maybe they lost their home, but now they trust and believe God more now. And we know that to be true because it's a biblical thing. Even if I've not met people and had these conversations, even if that, none of that were true, I know it's true because Scripture says this is how God works through hard times. <coughs> And so the fact that some of those people died and some of those people are angry at God should raise some questions in us when I ask something like, did God simply allow Katrina or did he send Katrina? There, that's a question that we could divide the room on and there would be people who said, well, he just allowed it. And there would be people who said, no, he actively brought it. And that's fine. You can have either opinion. But we need to bring that down to, in the end, it doesn't really matter whether he allowed it or he brought it. Because what we're saying is, a sovereign God, all-powerful, all-knowing, long before Katrina existed, knew that it was coming. He knew who would die. He knew who would go to hell. And he either allowed it to happen anyway, or he actively sent it. Either one could be true. But either way, it's telling something about God. It's telling us he didn't stop it, or he sent it, and he could have stopped it. So is God any more evil for allowing it to happen when he could have stopped it than he is for actively sending it? That's up to you to decide. I would say no. But I think what I, need, what I boil it down to is I have to see it like this. Instead of trying to fight the battle of how could a good God do this or a, a loving God would never Instead of trying to fight that battle, we need to see we're finite beings who cannot possess an infinite perspective. We cannot see like God sees. We cannot know like God knows. He's far above our ways. He understands things in a way that we could never understand them. We don't have the capacity or the perspective to see why Katrina would happen. And we don't know what a loving God would do because you're not God. What we do know is God is love. What we do know is God is good. So all that God does is good and loving because he defines it, not us. We can't hold God up to our definition of good and say God's not good. We don't get to define the word. That's arrogant. And, and to humble us, God allows things like Katrina to happen or sometimes he even sends things like a storm to discipline. So we have people that were in New Orleans and around that area who did not believe in God and they never would have. It's just, just the truth. So for them, I have to believe Katrina was the wrath of God. But there are people in New Orleans who love God, who live their lives for God, and Katrina still hit them. And so I have to believe that's God's discipline because he's merciful. So at the same time, just like eternity, at the same time God is loving and merciful and wonderful in heaven and on the new earth for all eternity, he is pouring out his wrath in hell. That's our God. We can't understand it, but that's him. And so it should strike us in a way, this is heavy, guys, I know, it should strike us in a way that, that causes us to think about who this God is, how big is this God, and how much damage would my sin do to me and to others? How much damage would sin have done to Jonah if God didn't send the storm? All the Ninevites would be in hell. Jonah would be who knows where. 
And maybe he would eventually feel convicted and then then shame himself for his failure to obey. But God in his mercy sent a storm. And he still does that today. It's not just a God of the Old Testament. He's not changed. He's the same God forever. And so I think of guys like, I mentioned Timothy Keller, I quoted him, and John Piper and Matt Chandler, three of my favorite preachers. Like, I love these guys. I've met Matt Chandler. I've not met the other two aspirations one day. I love these guys. I love them because of the way they proclaim gospel truth. They tie everything to the gospel. They're all about Jesus and all that they do, and they do it humbly. And what seems coincidental is all three of these guys have had cancer. Strange, right? Men of God. And this wasn't like before they were saved. This is in the midst of their ministry. Preaching, leading people, preaching the gospel, pastors of churches. Tim Keller had thyroid cancer. Matt Chandler had brain cancer. And John Piper had prostate cancer. All of them had cancer. And we know cancer to be a very bad thing, right? So why would these men of God get cancer? So I know what John Piper would say. <laughs> he would say, God gave me cancer. And I've, I, and I've heard Matt Chandler and, I, and I've heard Tim Keller refer, refer to their time of dealing with cancer. Matt still, it's still, there's still a chance it comes back. And the others, they've, they're cancer free as of right now and, and they're, they're worshiping God. But what we, what we can see, whether God just allowed them to get cancer or whether he gave them cancer, what we can see very clearly is that God has used that, that dark time in their life when just like Jonah, they were afraid when they heard the diagnosis. They were scared for their life. They were scared for their family. But then they remembered God, just like Jonah. They remembered God. And because of that, they continue to proclaim what they know is true, that God is merciful. And they, they prayed the prayers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God could save me from this, but even if He doesn't, I'm not bowing to idols. I'm not giving in to my fears. I'm going to worship the one true God. Even if I die, because they also know the prayer of Paul, that life is Christ, but death is gain. Worst case scenario, they're, they're with Jesus forever. And, and it's, it's not good to have cancer. They've never said it's good to have cancer. But what they see is a merciful God is bigger than cancer. And listen, guys, I don't want to have cancer to be like Matt Chandler or John Piper. I don't want that. I would love to be like them. I want to preach the gospel like they. I want to understand the Bible like they do. I want to love God like they do. And and it's beautiful that they continue to do so. But I don't want cancer. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to lose the ones I love. I didn't want my dad to leave when I was a child. I don't want suffering. Nobody wants suffering. But how great is our God that he would use the difficult things to make us more like Christ, to conform us into his image, that he would see what we don't see. We would never choose cancer. But that God would use cancer to bring him glory and use it for our good because he's always for the good of his people. This is a beautiful truth that rings out of this passage that we could easily read over because we're focused on the fish. God is so much bigger. The fish was just being obedient to the big God. 
The fish is no more significant in the story than the plant that God makes grow in chapter 4 or the worm that eats the plant. No one would call this Jonah and the worm. The story is about God and how great and powerful He is over all creation and how He's for the good of His people and that He would mercifully discipline us because He loves us. And so it's stories like Joseph in Scripture. The story of Joseph, he dealt with a lot of stuff. And at the end of his life, famously, he said, what man intended for evil, God has used for good. That's certainly true. Sometimes God allows man to do evil against us and he uses it for our good because we're his. But then we look also at the story of Jonah. And we see sometimes God sends the storm. Both are true. You don't have to choose which one is true. But in the midst of the storm, we continue to worship God and not our idols. So how sincere am I when I pray, God, do whatever it takes to draw me to you? How sincere are we when we pray, God, use me for your glory. Use me in evangelism. Use me to serve the the hurting and the broken. Use me to bring gospel truth to those who don't know gospel truth and do whatever it takes to get me there. How serious are we when we pray that, when you consider that it could mean a storm comes? It could mean severe discipline. It could mean losing some things. It could mean a lot of pain. And no one one can say God would never do that and be true. That's not true. Because He does. For your good. If it's scaring you, you don't believe the gospel. You may know it, but the coin hasn't dropped down to belief. If it's a scary thought, like you're terrified, what would you do if, fill in the blank, you're worshiping an idol? I know what my idols are because I can fill in that blank. If I lost my son, if I lost my wife, terrify me and I don't want to spend my life worshiping them and distraught over losing them and miss out on preaching the gospel to Nineveh because I'm too afraid and this is heavy I know it's heavy I feel it in the room I feel it when I think about it but let us bring these idols everybody in here came to this to this worship gathering with idols on your back you came to here with idols on your mind. There are things you're thinking about right now that you know you value more than you value God. And so let's take seriously this calling to be missionaries to Monroe, to let it be more than a Sunday worship time and be life on mission, laying down idols, preaching the gospel, doing whatever it takes because there's something so much more valuable than whatever you're valuing. And like Jonah, we see in verse 8, Pay regard not to false idols. Don't think about these vain idols. Don't focus on these idols and forsake the hope of steadfast love. Don't lose your belief and let the idols be what you worship. When asked about his cancer, Tim Keller responds like this. It's not on a slide, but I want you to hear it. And I want, I want it to grip you because the gospel is our hope When they asked him, why do you think you have cancer? 
He says this. God did not create a world with death and evil in it. It is not the result or it's not the result of God. It's the result of humankind turning away from God. We were put into this world to live wholly for him. And when instead we began to live for ourselves, everything in our created reality began to fall apart physically, socially, spiritually. Everything became subject to decay. But God did not abandon us. Of all the world's major religions, only Christianity teaches that God came to earth. In the form of Jesus, God came to earth as the better Jonah and became subject to suffering and death himself. Dying on the cross to take on the punishment for our sins so that someday he can return to earth and end all suffering without ending us. Do you see what this means? Yes. We don't know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it's so random. But now at least we know what the reason isn't, what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. This is the gospel. That is where our hope lies. That our God knows our suffering. That he himself would come and give up his life to die so that we don't have to end, but that we could live forever with him. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. In fact, the suffering is for our good. But let us see the gospel and believe it in verse 9 of Jonah chapter 2 with the voice of thanksgiving we sacrifice to this God for salvation belongs to the Lord. It's beautiful. That is the hope we have in the gospel that despite the suffering, God's worship because he's for our good. And there's some things we need to do now. We need to recognize the idols and we need to give them up and we need to daily give them up because as we continue to walk through John and we'll see that he didn't Consistently give up the idols. And altogether, it's a story of sadness. Though we see God is great and merciful. It's a story of God's people that though we know him to be God, we constantly fail to believe. So join me as we take communion, as we give to God, as we sing praises. Join me in laying down your idols and worshiping God for being the faithful, the merciful God that he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jonah. Thank you that he would humble himself to write down this shameful story of him running from you. That we could see that as we run from you, you are are so faithful and merciful to come after us that you would do whatever it takes to bring salvation to our lives. You would do whatever it takes to humble us so that we could see you are better than the things of this world. God, show us how to identify and to lay down the idols in our life. In this time of worship, as we praise you, let us see that even when we run, even when we lie, even when we try to hide ourselves from you, you're still God. You're still faithful. And you pour out mercy as you discipline us. Lord, I pray that this not be something we just let slide 
but that we would fight to believe and that we would see that you will bring belief as we lay down our idols and as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.